This morning's message is the pathway to glory. For those who don't know me, my name is Corey Smidgen. I'm one of the two pastors here at Paul Vista. Our other pastor, our lead pastor, Al Pino, is not here today because he is at our sister church in North Lauderdale, Riverside Christian Fellowship. Because this morning, right now, Adam Greenfield, the second pastor there at Riverside, is being ordained. And uh, what a wonderful moment that is in the life of the church, Adam and Nikki's life as well. We had the chance to do their oral examination, ordination, a couple months ago. But this morning, we are acknowledging God's call on this man's life. And Al is there, joining with, joining with Danny Jones. They are, of course, with their pastor, Brian Brookins, to pray for him and to ordain this man as an elder in the church. So it's an exciting moment, and Al is serving them by being there and being present this morning. Which means you got me, and I'm excited. It's been a while, back in the pulpit, and uh, thank you. Uh, uh, well, today's passage is John 12, verse 20 through 36. I've got a question for you. Who do you think has the most dangerous job in the world? Have you ever wondered that? I have. Is it those crazy window washers who are perched up on the 100th story of the Manhattan's building? Is it one of those circus lion tamers? Is it one of those alligator wrestlers? How about spelunkers? Know who they are? Underwater cave divers? What do you think? Well, I had to do a little internet search this morning, or actually this week, and found the top ten, not this morning, the top ten. <laughs> oh, that's good. The top ten in the world, most dangerous jobs. Here they go. Starting with ten, working our way up. Number ten, bodyguard. Number nine, coast guard, search, and rescue. Number eight, bomb squad. Yeah. <laughs> seven, seven, armored car guard. Yeah. <laughs> Sixth, policemen. Uh, thank you, Chris George. We're here. Thank you, Hector, as well. We have a couple in our midst here at Palm Vista. Number five, firefighter. Number four, miner. Number three, truck driver. Number two, logger. And the drum roll, number one is Alaskan crab fisherman. Have you ever seen the TV show, The Deadliest Catch? Okay, you're with, you're with me there. Uh, but church, they failed to list the deadliest job of all. It's being a Christian. The fatality rate of a fisherman, according to the U.S. stats in 2008, was 111 fatalities out of every 100,000. That computes to point. The church, the -the on-the-job death rate of a Christian is 100%. I'm not speaking about physical death, although we all will die one day. I'm speaking about death, death to self, self self-denial. You see, for Christ, the pathway to glory traveled through the cross. And it's the same for us as followers of Christ. 
That is God's word to us this, word to us this morning. Simply put in your notes, Jesus lived to die that you might die to live. So here's the question. Are you dead? Have you died this morning? You see, the answer to that question has everything to do with your fruitfulness here in this life and glory in the life to come with our Savior. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I do pray this morning that you would illuminate your word. Grant me grace to boldly proclaim and apply your word to us this morning. Lord, I ask that I may handle it carefully, with precision, and that you would attend your word this morning with power. Lord, we ask that you would uncage the gospel this morning, that you would open blind eyes, that you would pierce deaf ears. Oh, Lord, Lord, remove the earwax this morning, that we can hear, we pray. Lord, may we be able to see this morning the cost of discipleship in light of the glory of the cross, I pray. Amen. Let's open up to John 12, our text for this morning. We're going to be starting with verse 20 of John 12. As we continue our series, year-long series, on the Gospel of John. Starting at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was with from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake. <clears throat> Excuse me. Not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw, draw all men, all people, to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness 
overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. That is the word of God for us. Well, church, last week, Al spoke on Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The previous passage, John 12 through 19. If you're like me, probably most of us would probably prefer that picture of discipleship to the picture we just read just now. Picture of palm branches, Savior coming in, praising God, a celebration. Most of us would prefer a celebration. Who doesn't like a victory parade? Who doesn't like gathering here this morning as we did to worship God? I think most of us would prefer that picture. But as you learn today, Christ's triumphal entry was not just a victory parade. No, Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem was a death march, a death procession. Christ was riding into Jerusalem to die upon a cross. And the action slows in the narrative of John. You see, in the first 12 chapters, John covers three years of Christ's life. But he's now slowing down the action in the narrative. And then the next nine chapters that we have to go in the book of John, he covers one week. That one week is often referred to as the Passion Week. The hour for which Christ came to this earth. You see, with this passage, we enter in transition into the Gospel of John. Now is the time. The hour has come. The scene of his death has now been set. The whole world has arrived and gone after him including the Gentiles, verse 19. And with that, we read in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Well, who were these Greeks that approached the disciples Who are these Greeks who wanted to see Jesus? That term Greeks is really an umbrella term, meaning Gentiles, non-Jews. Presumably, these were God-fearers, people who respected Judaism, the Jews, for their monotheism, perhaps for their ethical code. But these Gentiles weren't converts. They had not been circumcised. They could go to the feast in Jerusalem, but they had to remain in the outer courts, for they were unable because they were not Jews, because they were not converts, to enter in to the inner courts. And yet we hear them say, I want to see Jesus. I want to meet with this man. I want to interview this man. The whole world is talking about where the whole world has come and gathered. So naturally they approach Philip, a good Greek name, Philip. Sounds good? They approach Philip. Philip then talks to Andrew, another Greek name, the two disciples of the twelve who had Greek names, and they go to ask Jesus. I'm wondering what the disciples were thinking. Perhaps even themselves, they were a little unsure. 
Would Jesus agree to meet with these Gentiles? Could these Gentiles approach Jesus? But here's a curious thing. Jesus does not seem to even answer the request. At least at first blush. For we read in John 12, verse 23, And Jesus answered them the request to see him. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus, is that a no? Is that a yes? Is that a maybe? I think it's a not yet. What Jesus is saying, I have some business yet to do that I must first attend to, and then you will have your answer. To quote one commentary, this request to see Jesus of the Gentiles, of the Greeks, is like an exploding fuse in the mind of Jesus. Boom! The hour has come. What hour? The hour of Christ's glorification, in which the dividing wall between the inner and the outer court, between the Jew and the Gentile, would be abolished through his death on the cross. Because Jesus was about to draw all men, all kinds of people, to himself. You see, all the previous signs in the book of John had pointed to this hour, pointed to this time that had now come. It was no longer in the distance. It was here. Remember the first sign that Christ did at the wedding at Cana? Remember the request of his mother, Mary? Hey, Jesus, son, we're out of wine. What does he say to his mother? He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Remember later on when he was speaking in the temple courts? He was speaking openly and boldly at one of the previous feasts. And they were seeking to arrest him. But we read in John 7 verse 30, But no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. But now the hour has come. The not yet is over. The now has arrived. The goal of the entire mission of Jesus is marked by the arrival and the request of the Gentiles to be able to see and now approach Jesus. And yet, he's troubled. Very troubled. We skip down to verse 27 in our passage. It says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. Jesus is troubled. This word here. Trouble signifies shock, agitation, even revulsion. The realization of his imminent suffering breaks over Jesus at this point. Why? Because he's going to have to die. The excruciating death on the cross. That he is going to be cursed for you and for me. You see, the hour for which Christ came into the world was the hour in which he was going to leave it. That is the hour. So in the Garden of Gethsemane-like confession, he gives voice to his humanity and his flesh, saying, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. Just as he has taught the disciples in the Lord's Prayer, he prays, Father, glorify your name. 
or Father, hallowed be your name. And a voice booms from heaven for all those in earshot. The Father will be glorified in Christ's death. The Father will be glorified in the crushing of his own son. And he wants the world to know it. And he wants the world to know it. Verse 31. We read, Now is the judgment of the world. You see, at the cross, at this hour, the world is judged. In other words, at this point, God is now judging the world for sin. We now see at the cross God's holiness and his wrath revealed as it is poured out on his son who took our place for all those who repent and believe, for our salvation, for his glory. Not only that, we go on to read, now will the ruler of the world be cast out. Who is the ruler of the world? He's referring to Satan. You see, when Satan thought he had his greatest triumph at the cross, it was just the opposite. Until this time, Satan had held the race of man from Adam on in the chains of guilt and condemnation. And now God was going to smash those chains of guilt and condemnation. And he is going to be victorious over the evil one. Not just for the Jews, but as we read in this passage, for all people. Not every single person, but meaning all kinds of people. Jews and Gentiles alike. For our salvation and for his glory. Do you understand now Christ's response to the Jews, teaching to the Gentiles a little better? He's basically saying, when I die, you will be able to truly see me and know me and approach me. But there's something else. Christ also wants the Gentiles, you and me, to see. It's encapsulated in this little phrase, lifted up. He was lifted up, verse 32, from the earth. And I will draw all people to myself. This is a loaded word, a word of double meaning. You see, it refers to Christ being lifted up on a cross physically. But it also means his being lifted up and being exalted by the Father. That word lifted up literally means exalted. So it's through the cross that the Savior will be lifted up and exalted by his Father in heaven and thus glorified. A quote there in your notes. Jesus is not glorified despite the cross, but through and in the cross. Do you see it? This picture of the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, right? His death is glory. The cross is exaltation. Christ's submission to the Father, his obedience unto death, is Christ's pathway to glory. And you know what? It's ours as well. And this is where the passage narrative turns. Church, we don't want to miss it at this point. All that we just spoke about Christ living to die for this hour has application for us this morning and how then we should live. Here it is, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In other words, what is true for Jesus must also be true for us as his followers. All peoples, all nations. Just as Christ had submitted to the Father, so we must submit to Christ in death. Death to self. Death is the pathway to glory. Death is the pathway to fruitfulness. Death is the pathway, pathway to honor. Christ is in effect saying, in effect saying, to quote John Piper, my dying for your salvation is also my design for your imitation. If you want to see me, be prepared to become like me. Let me say that again. My dying for your salvation is also my design for your imitation. Christ being lifted up on the cross is to be a blueprint for you and for me. It is to be our story, our life's story. Is it your story? Is it your blueprint? See, please hear this. Christ's death on the cross was unique. Neither you or I can atone for our own sins. Why? Because Christ's sacrifice was perfect. He was perfect and unblemished. But Christ's death on the cross makes our death possible today. That we may then join in and share in his glory. That we might die to live. Second point in your notes. That we may die to self. So what kind of death? Excuse me. Wow. <laughs> Not ready to die physically quite yet. Thank you, Lord. What kind of death is Scripture talking about? It could be physical death. It may be martyrdom. But you know what? For most of us, it probably won't be. But for all of us, it'll be a death to self. A death to our idolatrous cravings. A death to our selfish pursuits, our selfish ambitions, and our selfish dreams. A death to vain recognition, a death to earthly glory. Verses 25 and 26 put it this way. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. You catch these words? We must die. Whoever hates his life, we read on in verse 26, whoever serves and follows me. This is the pathway to glory. Is it hard? Yeah, it's hard. Is it painful? Very painful. What does it mean, whoever loves his life? Simply put, it means to delight in one's life in this world, to delight in my life more than in God, more than in Jesus. It's the essence of self-centeredness. It's the essence of sin. I love how one author, one pastor, Milton Vincent, puts it. He says... To love one's life is a lack of persuasion that there is someone out there who is worthy to be loved more than myself. Ouch. A lack of persuasion that someone out there 
other than myself is to be loved more than myself. That's what it means to love your life more than God. He goes on, whoever hates his life means by contrast to think so little of his life and so much of God that he is willing to sacrifice it all. In other words, he is willing to die, that he is willing to surrender all. So do you, comparatively speaking, hate your life? Are you willing to die? Give it all up. Surrender all to him. You may object this morning and say, but Corey, haven't I already died in Christ? Well, if you're a Christian this morning, you've repented of your sins and placed your trust in Christ's atoning work on the cross, you know what? You have died. You've died. You've died to sin. Oh, sin's still there. It dwells you. It no longer has any power over you. You have died. That's the point of verses 24 and 25. You haven't died. You're not a Christian. There's no salvation without death. Christ's death. And that's your death in Christ. So many passages refer to this. One of the more well-known ones I love, Galatians 2.20. I'll just simply read it to you. No need to turn there. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Colossians 3.3. 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So in one sense, yes. If you're a Christian this morning, you've died. But there's another sense we're talking about here as well. It goes on to verse 26. We're called to serve and follow Christ. This serving and following Christ, my friends, is not a one-time act. It's a daily occurrence. It's also true that we must die daily. In the overhead, we'll put up Luke 9, verse 23. Let us hear these words. Let us heed them carefully. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Sound familiar? Here's the key. God calls us. He's calling you. He's calling me as Christians, to experience practically in daily life what is already true about us positionally. Say that again. He's calling us to experience daily practically our dying according to what is true about us positionally. And that is we're dead in Christ and alive to Him. He wants you to experience it. You see, God is committed To your dying, he is committed to my dying every day. And he calls me to that same commitment over and over again. He insists that every hour be my dying hour. He insists that my death, bearing the cross, would be as central to my life as it is to his life. Christ's death is the gospel story. I want to give you a quote from Milton Vincent again. That's so helpful. We'll put it out for you. It's from his wonderful book, A Gospel Primer. He says this. Nevertheless, I must set my face like a flint toward the cross and embrace the crucifixion in everything I do. I should expect every day 
to encounter circumstantial evidence of God's commitment to my dying. And I must seize upon every God-given opportunity to be conformed more fully to Christ's death, no matter the pain involved. Well, that's helpful. When my flesh yearns for that which is prohibited, I must die. When called to do something I don't want to do, I must die. When I wish to be selfish and serve no more, I must die. When shattered by hardships that I despise, I must die. When wanting to cling to wrongs dead against me, I must die. When enticed by the allurements of the world, I must die. When wishing to keep besetting sins secret, I must die. When wants that are borderline needs are left unmet, I must die. When dreams that are good seem shoved aside, I must die. This past Monday, I experienced once again God's commitment to my dying. Monday is my one day off, and I awoke very, very aware of the many things that had to be accomplished on Monday. My garage door was busted, kaput. I knew I had to go get, buy some parts for it. My main AC, main air conditioner, was on the fritz as well. My cell phone was apparently dead, hadn't worked for two days. I had multiple errands to run, a daytime with my two youngest children, and I had a lawn that was a jungle. That's what I woke up to on Monday morning. How am I going to get it all done? So I wake up, have breakfast with my family, go outside with my lawnmower. Instant gratification. I can do the lawn first. That's pretty easy. We've got a small lawn up front, okay? I can do that. Check one off. Get the lawnmower up there, about ready to pull the rip cord, the cord. And then up comes our pest control man. Now, I like our pest control man, Lewis. He, but he came unannounced. Now, I had been praying for him for a while. I said, Lord, next time he comes, I want to sit down and share the faith, my faith with him, the gospel, using a little tract. How good are you? But I wasn't ready. I saw him going, no, Lord, not today. Not today. I can't. You know how much I have to do today, Lord. Anytime. My heart just sunk. And I, I'm grappling. I'm wrestling. So he goes in, sprays the house. I have about 15 minutes. I'm like, Lord, no. <laughs> At that moment, I felt like one of those cavemen in the Geico commercials. Oh, I get it. I quit. I quit, Lord, but I get it. Oh, I had been framed. I wanted to take off, turn around, and leave. God said, no, you must die. You must die. So about 20 minutes later, I stopped the lawnmower, walked in the house, sat down. I said, Lewis, can I share with you the gospel? It was a small victory that day. It was a taste of glory. I can tell you by God's grace, I did it happily. But we were being tested every day. Why? Because God is committed to us dying daily. And he will put you in such battles. 
Not because he wants to use you like a caveman. Not because he wants to use you as a pawn. No, because he is saving and sanctifying you. Is it hard? Yes, it's hard. But don't miss the glorious truth. I can die daily. If you are in Christ, you can die daily. Because you are dead to sin and alive to him. God is not being cruel what he is asking of you. He is not being cruel. It's through his death on the cross that makes my death to sin and self possible. I can die daily, and so can you. I can, but it gets even better. Not only am I called to die, not only are we called to die, but dying is in fact glorious. See, if all you see is the hard parts, the painful part, you're missing the freedom and the power that God has for you in the Christian life. If all you see is the hard part, you're going to miss the glory of the cross. Four years ago, when our oldest son was about eight years old, we took our first vacation to the mountains of Georgia. One day, we climbed this ridge only to get utterly lost and caught in a fierce lightning storm in a deluge. But eventually, we made it to the top. I can still hear the words of my son that day. He said in a phrase that, a phrase that has been immortalized in our family ever since. He said, Daddy, sometimes you have to suffer to have fun. Sometimes you have to suffer to have fun. Thank you, CJ. In his eight-year-old vocabulary, CJ was expressing a truth that suffering, that dying to the flesh is a pathway to glory. What he saw and experienced on that hike, as glorious as it was, would not have been possible without dying to the flesh, without cramping legs and blistered feet as we marched on. Church, there are mountains and there are vistas that you will not see, that you will not experience apart from dying. There are mountaintops, there are vistas that we as a church will not experience apart from our own death. It's God's design. It's hard, it's painful, but please hear this, it is glorious. The glory of the cross tells me that dying is not the end. That dying is not the end. In God's economy, death and death to self is the pathway to life, to glory and fruitfulness. Back to verse 24. Oh, it benefits for me to read it again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Some of you right now, you've been praying, perhaps for a long time. You've been praying, Lord, I want to see fruit in my own life, more fruit, more impact in my life, more fruit in my marriage, in my parenting, in my evangelism, in my singleness, in my vocation. And that has been your prayer. Can I say to you this morning, God desires, I believe, wants to answer that prayer. He wants to give you abundant fruit. He wants to give you a harvest, a bountiful harvest, a tree dripping with fruit. I think of mango trees in June and July. They're just dripping 
with mangoes, with those long stems, like ornaments on a tree. That's a picture of what I believe God wants to give you, of fruitfulness in your life. But it won't come, and it cannot come without dying. It may mean dying to your dreams of what you thought you would be or should be. Now, dreams in of themselves aren't bad. You may have some godly dreams. But you may, may also be holding on to an illusion, to a lie. That says the grass is greener over there. The grass is greener over there. And you have missed the green pasture, the fertile field in which God has providentially placed you right now. And he has fruit for you where you are right now. If only you would die to yourself. And if you die to yourself, you know what? Oh, he's going to exceed. Yes, exceed your wildest dreams. But you must die. It may mean dying to that secret sin that no one else knows about but God. So you wonder why there hasn't been more fruit in your life. You wonder why your witness seems so dim. Why your appetite for God seems so dull. But what awaits you should you die is a God-sized appetite for God's holiness. What awaits you is a spiritual boldness without fear and without shame. If you'd only die. It may mean dying to the harmless, harmless little hobbies that rob you of time and service to God and to others. The little hobbies. They're not sin in themselves, but you know what I'm talking about. They're robbing you of meaningful service to your Savior. If you don't die, you will remain a spectator on the sidelines of God's church. A spectator in God's redemptive activity. But should you die, what awaits you is a legacy of praise and service to God that will extend from generation to the next generation. And I believe will follow you into heaven if only you would die. It may mean dying to your cravings for others' approval. It may mean risking being called the fool. Oh, if you do this, if you die to self, I believe you will experience the favor of God, a favor upon your life that will give you wings. You'll no longer be earthbound. You'll be able to ride upon God's grace and experience fruitfulness that you've never experienced before, that you've only prayed about that it will become a reality. But it's a seed that dies that is fruitful for harvest. Fruitfulness is costly, isn't it? Glory has a cost, but it's worth it. But dying is just not about fruitfulness here on earth. It's about that. It's also about a life with Christ in glory. It's about the honor of the Father, our God. If we read in verse 26, for those who die, hate their own life, they will in fact keep their lives for eternal life. And they will join Jesus where he is in glory. They will join him where he is in glory. The glory that awaits you in heaven is everlasting and it's never fading. How many of you have received a diploma? Or perhaps 
won a big game or a championship. Or perhaps just received that coveted prize at the cost of much sacrifice. And once you got it, a little later, you just said to yourself, is that it? Is there more to life than that? Worldly glory fades. It fades like a pair of jeans. But faded jeans are cool. (laughs) Faded glory is not. It's depressing. (laughs) All that sacrifice, all that work for this. For this. Friends, the glory of heaven, the glory of Christ will never fade. It will be infinitely better. In heaven, you will not question the sacrifice. You will not question the works. You'll not question the suffering. You'll not question your death here on earth. Wow, Lord. I, you know, thinking back, I wish I would have gone to more Dolphins games. Yeah, I wish I would have bought more clothing, more cookware, went to more movies. No, you won't. The sacrifice will be worth it. The self-denial here on earth will be worth it when you meet your maker and redeemer in glory. When you die, you'll be the beginning in the words of C.S. Lewis. Chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. You see, in heaven, glory doesn't fade. Glory intensifies. And you'll be spending the rest of the turning shouting, glory, glory to God. That's what awaits those who die. In conclusion, can you see it? See, the Gentiles, they wanted to see Jesus. His answer, if you want to see me, I must die. And you must be prepared to follow me to where I go, to the cross and to the grave. I will show you the way. You're here this morning. You're not ignorant of the way. You are not without excuse. We have been shown through his gracious word what kind of savior we have. It's a savior who lives to die that we might die to live. You've been shown the light. You've been shown the pathway to glory. Yet we read in the very end of this narrative that the crowds, they didn't get it. Verse 34, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you. For a little while longer, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, these are sobering words, he departed and hid himself from them. When Jesus hid himself from them, he is signifying that his public ministry is over. It's drawing to a close. He's leaving us. He's leaving you with one last appeal and warning. And so do I. Believe while there's still light. For there will be a day when there will be no more life, no more light. It's called death final death. 
and judgment. Church, die now so that you can live then. Let's pray. Worship team, you come forward. Oh, Father, I am well aware this morning that this is a hard message. But you do not leave us without hope this morning. And my prayer is that you would show us the hope, the hope of glory. That what you ask, you will give us the grace to do. That as Christ died, as Christ lifted up and exalted in glory, that we too can surrender all. That we too can die to self. And that we too can experience your favor, your life, and your glory, and your fruitfulness. So Father, help us not to see the cost this morning. Help us to see the glorified Christ. Help us to see the glory of the cross, even as we sing. Lord, and fill our hearts with gratitude. For, O oh Christ, O oh Savior, you live to die. You live to die. That we may now daily die to live for you. May we live now. May we sing. Let's rise. Amen.